Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir, and today I have with me Daniel Stolz, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Science and Human Culture Program at Northwestern University. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Nir. And today, we're, what we're, the title of our talk today is basically uh, Astronomy and Islam in Late Ottoman Egypt. I think this is this is one another episode, another part of our ongoing series on history of science in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but I think this one especially touches upon a variety of important topics. For instance, the intersection between astronomy and the religious culture in Cairo in the 19th century. And we're going to be talking increasingly about things like timekeeping practices, the Arabic press, colonialism, imperialism, and the kind of overlapping sovereignties present in late 19th century Egypt and how, you know, we can get at them through the practice uh, of astronomy. So let's start with the basic question. You know, when we say we're talking about astronomy and Islam, what, what's the connection here? How, what, can you give us like just a basic overview of, you know, what does it mean to say, what is astronomy in the medieval period or so forth? Where, where does astronomy and Islam intersect and what can we, what can we know about the basics of it? Absolutely. Um, so uh, there are multiple ways of thinking about this. One very important way of thinking about astronomy uh, and Islam, uh, of course, is in terms uh, uh, of the very old history of astronomy being used uh, for specifically uh, Islamic uh, religious practices. Um, so there's, uh, of course, uh, a way of determining the times of prayer in Islam uh, based on astronomical uh, definitions. Um, this is the tradition of miqat, right, uh, astronomical timekeeping, uh, and uh, as well as, of course, uh, the direction of prayer, the qibla, the beginning and end uh, of the month uh, of Ramadan, uh, and so forth. But one can also think of it uh, in broader terms. So, for example, even this uh, tradition of timekeeping uh, has important uh, uses uh, in uh, the area of astrology, for example. So um, if you are interested in casting a horoscope, let's say, um, you need to know the positions of the planets, you know, either in the future, in the past, that requires um, technical information um, that would be available or could be made available through um, uh, the tradition of uh, astronomical uh, timekeeping. As you know, of course, uh, in the Islamic world uh, during the uh, Abbasid period, not only Greek but also Indian, uh, Persian, uh, Syriac sources were uh, translated, appropriated um, by the uh, Abbasid translators. Uh, and um, one of the things that, that happens beginning uh, as early as the 10th century is that uh, people start to uh, draw uh, what one might call uh, sort of disciplinary uh, distinctions between different uh, ways of studying the stars. Um, so as early as the 10th century, certainly one uh, sees people talking about uh, a distinction between astrology and uh, astronomy. Later on, uh, certainly by the 12th century, um, one also has uh, a tradition called Hea, which develops, um, which is um, specifically concerned with um, 
understanding uh, the models of celestial motion, the planetary models, uh, in particular uh, proposing alternatives or reforms to the Ptolemaic uh, planetary models. Um, so we have astrology, we have this tradition of, he- uh, of um, planetary models, um, we have miqat, um, timekeeping, which has um, particular intersections with Islamic religious practices. Um, but I would argue that uh, in a social milieu in, in which um, most of the people practicing astronomy are um, also participating in a broader kind of Islamic scholarship, right, also participating in the study of fiqh, uh, in the study, uh, of course, of, of tafsir, of hadith, right, in which astronomy participates in a, in a broader uh, scholarly milieu that, that one can think of, of all of these types of, of uh, astronomy as a, as a kind of uh, Islamic uh, astronomy, even where, uh, even beyond the kind of specific intersections with uh, religious uh, practice. Um, I also just want to say that, that although we have, from a very early point, uh, some of these distinctions between astrology and astronomy um, or um, uh, timekeeping and planetary uh, theory, um, it's not necessarily the case that we should think of those as disciplinary distinctions in the sense that uh, one would only practice one would practice in one area or another. So there are there are connections, right? Um, so um, you know some of the great um, uh, figures who did work in planetary theory, let's say in in the medieval period, uh, earned their living through um, work as timekeepers mm-hmm. in mosques um, or through patronage as astrologers, uh, right? So there are these these uh, kinds of uh, connections as well. And just to, I mean, kind of situate these people more, when we're speaking, where are they conducting their like observations? Um, I know, you know, Aydin Sayle wrote one of one of the kind of first books on Islamic history of science, and also the first person to get a PhD in Islamic uh, in history of science. You know, wrote about the kind of the birth of the observatory in Islamic lands. I mean, this is this is more of a background question, but are they are these people working in observatories? Or are they just you know sitting in the mosque looking at the stars? Can you give us a sense of kind of what kind of where are they? conducting their observations, what, what kind of settings are they working in? Sure. Uh, well, as you say, the observatory is an important um, part of the history uh, of astronomy in the Islamic world, certainly the Maraga uh, Observatory, um, the Samarkand uh, Observatory, right? Uh, and then uh, I just want to mention as well the Istanbul uh, Observatory, right, since um, we're talking about uh, Ottoman history, right, uh, of the Istanbul Observatory of, of the 1570s, um, of Taqiyuddin. Um, these, uh, of course, are observatories that are associated with, one can say, you know, specific observational programs, uh, specific, uh, you know, the patronage of uh, specific rulers, um, specific kind of uh, groups of, of people working there and and often you know don't uh, are not sort of long-term uh, uh, institutions or, or don't turn out to be uh, anyway um, one of the things I'm interested in um, and you know to bring this into the period that I'm I'm working on uh, in the 19th century one sees particularly in Cairo uh, the establishment of state observatories which um, um, become a more kind of permanent uh, 
uh, institution and and uh, aspect of the the state bureaucracy. Um, so that's one of the phenomena that that I'm looking at uh, in my work. So I mean, let's now bring it to this, you know, to 19th century Egypt, especially Cairo, and kind of look at this kind of slightly overlooked period of Islamic history of science. You know, so often, uh, as we I think we'll speak about later, you know, history of science in the Islamic period focuses on the classical medieval period. And we forget that this interest in nature or the natural world around you uh, continues and it continues to influence and interact with society and culture all the way into the 20th century in our current period. Um, so when we're talking about astronomy in 19th century Egypt, what does it look like? How, I mean, what, who is involved? What are they doing? Can you give us a kind of a brief sketch of what's going on? Absolutely. Uh, well, one of the things that's so interesting to me about uh, astronomy in this period uh, in Cairo, uh, in particular, uh, is the uh, kind of diversity of, of actors uh, and kind of overlapping uh, knowledge traditions uh, in play. Uh, so you're absolutely right um, that the continued practice of some of these Islamic traditions of astronomy that we've been talking about is is a is a largely overlooked and I think important uh, phenomenon when we think about the history uh, of science uh, in uh, the 19th century Middle East uh, and uh, in the late Ottoman Empire, um, which tends to be written and, and not unjustifiably written and, and understood through the increasing importance of uh, exchange and, and connection with uh, Europe and, and particularly um, with France um, and, and to a lesser extent, of course, um, England uh, as well as Russia. Um, one of the things I'm interested, uh, most interested in is um, the continued practice of some of these Islamic traditions of astronomy. Um, in particular, I, I see uh, the tradition of astronomical timekeeping uh, still being practiced by uh, ulama, um, Muslim scholars who are studying in places like Al-Azhar and, and, uh, and its uh, environs in Cairo. Um, who are writing commentaries on uh, what's called the Zij, which is sort of the the classical uh, genre of um, uh, Islamic uh, astronomical uh, timekeeping and, and positional uh, astronomy. Could you just explain what it, what is a Zij? A Zij, um, well, it's helpful even to think about the, the etymology or what's said to be the etymology uh, of the word, which relates it to kind of a, a Persian word for um, sort of threads or, or lines, which which you know uh, evoke the um, the tables of the zij. So so uh, uh, the zij is, is uh, a genre of astronomical scholarship which um, is concerned with um, enabling one to. Uh, and this will, may take several explanations to uh, to cover in an, in an efficient way, um, but um, one could say it, it enables kind of the the um, one a person who is doing observational astronomy to solve all or, or astrology to solve all of kind of the basic problems that they would be concerned with. So um, to know the um, uh, dates of the calendar and the correspondence between the different. Uh, calendars that are in use uh, in uh, the Islamic world um, to be able to tell time uh, based on uh, the position of the stars or the sun to be able to predict um, the um, motion of the planets to to be able to um, predict um, eclipses um, to be able to uh, 
determine the or predict the beginning and end of the the month and Ramadan uh, and so forth and and a lot of this as as I as I started to say is done with reference to tables so a lot of it uh, has to do with instructions for the use of uh, of um, of, uh, of mathematical tables um, so so uh, so uh, people in the 19th century are still uh, learning how to do this they're writing commentaries uh, on it um, they um, are also um, using uh, some of this knowledge um, for the practice of astrology, which is certainly remains a very important part uh, of uh, uh, Ottoman society and uh, Egyptian society in the 19th century. Uh, just to give one example, Mehmet Ali Pasha in Cairo was uh, said to have consulted uh, with uh, his astrologers before... Um, uh, decisions such as the uh, decision to uh, eliminate or, or massacre the the Mamluk elite, um, right? So, I mean, this kind of use of uh, of astronomical knowledge remains very common. I think. I mean, who is using it? Like, so we have Mehmet Ali, mm-hmm. but I mean, I'm assuming like more common people or random ulama would also be interested in using, let's say, astrological or uh, astrological or astronomical data. Absolutely. I mean, uh, astrology, uh, you know, has relevance for uh, decisions in all sorts of arenas, uh, be it, uh, you know, marriage, be it uh, medicine, right? Uh, not only history can be understood to be affected through the, the motion of, of uh, the planets, but also the body, right? And the, and the um, progression of a disease can be understood through uh, astrology. Um and then to uh, you know, I, I want to make sure we don't focus too much on astrology. Um, uh, it's critically important, but also, um, for example, um, scholars use uh, astronomy to uh, teach people how to use uh, mechanical timepieces that become a big part of the material culture of the Ottoman Empire. Not just the late Ottoman Empire earlier as well, but certainly. Uh, uh, in the 19th century are uh, a big part of the material culture of a place like Cairo um, and uh, learning how to uh, correct and, and set a mechanical timepiece correctly is something that you know a specialist in astronomical timekeeping can uh, can uh, can help one do um, and that has relevance for knowing how to use a watch it has relevance for knowing uh, when to pray so that's another important uh, context uh, to keep in mind. So this is, I think, it's like an interesting look at it, just how many different uses there are for astronomical slash astrological data in you know 19th century Egyptian society. So, I mean, you just mentioned these clocks. Can you give us some more information about them? Like why, why all of a sudden are there mechanical watches and clocks flooding the Middle East, and why why is it important for people to be able to set them correctly? Well, I know you've had, uh, for example, uh, Avner Vishnitzer do um, uh, uh, an episode on the podcast. So, uh, as you know, um, there's actually quite a, a long history of mechanical timepieces in, in the Ottoman Empire going back uh, to a diplomatic gift exchange, um, you know, as early as, as, let's say, the 16th century. Um, there was quite a fad um, in, the, in the Ottoman court for mechanical timepieces. It becomes a kind of uh, de rigueur um, uh, diplomatic gift that uh, ambassadors would bring to Istanbul uh, but uh, it becomes a, a, a commodity uh, 
as well. Um, so English watchmakers in particular, as well as continental watchmakers, and eventually uh, 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 domestic uh, um, watchmakers in the Ottoman Empire, uh, produce uh, timepieces uh, and um, bring them, especially into the Eastern Mediterranean cities, uh, in, in large numbers, certainly by the 18th century. Uh, and they're designed, one thing that's interesting about them is that they're designed uh, aesthetically uh, for uh, what, you know, the, the European watchmakers took to be a kind of Ottoman aesthetic. Um, so, for example, you know, they uh, would remove um, certain kind of uh, pictorial uh, designs and replace them with uh, 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 flowers. Uh, they would use the... Um, the um, Arabic uh, or, or um, uh, Eastern Arabic uh, numerals, uh, um, uh, and uh, so they're so they're designed to to appeal to uh, to the Ottoman market, um, and they become, I would say, by the 18th century, uh, an, an important part of uh, urban uh, material culture, at least in uh, Cairo, uh, the Levant, and, and and Istanbul. But so once you have a watch, I mean, where does the astronomy fit in? Ah, uh, so uh, well, in 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 a number of ways, um, the Ottomans uh, used their mechanical timepieces in uh, a specific way, uh, which was uh, typically uh, a method uh, sometimes called gurubisat, um, which was a way of measuring time uh, from the moment of sunset. So uh, for us, right, and I'm looking at my watch and it actually says 12 o'clock right now, uh, that doesn't really mean anything in terms of when uh, the sun rose or set uh, today where you and I uh, are sitting, uh, right? It's a kind of arbitrary conventional uh, time. Uh, for the Ottomans, however, uh, they would actually set their watches uh, on a daily basis to 12 o'clock uh, when the sun set. Uh, and so time is measured uh, as a, a function of, of duration from, from that moment, uh, that variable moment, right, which changes every day uh, of, of sunset. And so, um, uh, in or, uh, so one thing that uh, uh, scholars of astronomy do in this period is they produce, for example, um, tables that will allow you to set your watch or your clock according to this system, not only at the moment of sunset, um, but based on uh, your observation of the altitude of the sun during the day. Um, they also produce prayer tables that will give uh, the times of prayer according to this uh, system, uh, and which conversely would also enable you to set your watch, um, let's say when you heard the, the call to, uh, to prayer. Uh, so there's a whole kind of system of, of knowledge and practice that's that's organized uh, around uh, this uh, material uh, culture of the of the mechanical timepiece in uh, in the Ottoman and, and late Ottoman uh, period. Um, things get more complicated in the late 19th and early 20th century as as parts of of the Ottoman Empire start, or or some people in in some Ottoman cities start also keeping time according to things like Greenwich Standard Mean Time. Um, but now we're getting ahead of ourselves. Okay, so before we jump to there, like I mean, let's go back to 19th century Egypt. You know, one of the things we wanted to talk about is kind of the connection between astronomy and religious culture, and we've kind of talked about how you know people used it to set prayer times and to set their watches. But, I mean, isn't this, you know, just to ask a question, a simple question, but, you know, isn't the, how did, didn't people already know what their prayer, what were the prayer times? How did, 
you know, what was different about this? Why were people interested in like having correct uh, prayer times for themselves? Like, and who was kind of pushing this seemingly, you know, is there an increase in interest in astronomy and who is kind of behind it? Well, of course, the 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 uh, knowledge of uh, defining the times of prayer, uh, Islamic prayer, uh, astronomically is is quite old. Uh, I don't mean to imply at all that this is that 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 aspect of what's going on in the nineteenth century is new. I mean, uh, one thinks, for example, of Ibn Yunus, the the tenth century uh, scholar in in Cairo. Uh, who uh, produced uh, the foundation of you know what is sometimes called you know, kind of the Cairo corpus of, of timekeeping tables, a massive uh, 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 corpus of uh, manuscript corpus of timekeeping tables that's produced you know through the uh, uh, through the medieval period um, and has been studied in the work of uh, David King uh, among others. Um, so, but I do think that in the nineteenth century there's an increase. Increasing, uh, increasingly broad interest in observing the times of prayer, performing prayer uh, according to uh, that uh, definition, right? So it's it's not necessarily the case, you know, say in Fatimid uh, Egypt or in the Mamluk period, even uh, when one one sees the the spread of. Um, Timekeeper positions in in mosques. It's not necessarily the the case that 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 way of observing the times of prayer is that um, is that widely uh, spread. Certainly beyond you know kind of elite um, or at least um, urban uh, areas. Um, I mean, uh, there's no reason one can't simply pr- pray uh, maghrib, let's say, um, when one sees uh, the sun uh, set in the sky. Um, but I do think that with um, the interaction with the mechanical timepiece um, and increasing numeracy uh, in the late Ottoman period and then you know, certainly in the early 20th century, there is an increasingly, as, as well as, and this is something else we can talk about, um, the interest of Islamic reformists in, in increasing the, the kind of uniformity of practice uh, in the Islamic community in that period. There's an increasing interest in, in having everyone sort of praying according to, you know, a single and, and correct uh, time. And that's part of the history of, of how it, you know, becomes the case that today, for example, uh, you know, um, this sort of mathematical way of, of observing uh, prayer is is um, is uh, totally normative, you know, and, and uh, you know, there are very popular websites, for example, where one can kind of download the, the times of prayer uh, for, you know, wherever one ha- happens to be traveling and, and so forth. So when you see, like, you know, who are the actors that are kind of behind this, I mean, this change in the 19th century, you know, uh, we mentioned, for instance, the establishment of state observatories in 19th century Egypt, but it seems also that there's, you know, Islamic reformers, can you kind of fill in, you know, who who are we talking about? What are their motivations? Why are they, how do they intersect? Well, one of the things that's so interesting to me about it is that it really is a kind of an unusual convergence of, of, of actors who you wouldn't necessarily associate with each other or think, you know, would have uh, aligned uh, interests, um, uh, but do can all contribute to this uh, trend. So on the one hand, you have um, Muslim scholars um, who are, um, I would argue, uh, deploying their their knowledge of astronomical timekeeping to um, uh, 
make themselves relevant to uh, um, contribute to the the fashioning of uh, of uh, uh, material culture. You know, as the watch become and the clock become uh, really popular objects, it's a way for them to uh, express their relevance, uh, their claims to knowledge that they you know can teach people the correct way of using these objects. Uh, at the same time, for um, servants of the viceregal state in mid and late 19th century uh, Cairo, uh, using the knowledge uh, that they have uh, acquired through their study in new institutions like the uh, Mohandas Khanna uh, School of um, Engineering, for lack of a better word, uh, in 19th century Cairo through their study at places like the Observatoire de Paris uh, in France, using that the knowledge they acquired there to um, speak to these you know, very venerable uh, Islamic questions about uh, the timing of prayer to acquire a kind of uh, uh, legitimacy through through showing that they can answer those questions uh, as well, uh, and at the same time, as as I as I was saying, uh, especially when one gets to the, towards the end of the nineteenth century and then the early twentieth century, it has I think uh, a lot of resonance with Islamic reformists who, in part for political reasons having to do with uh, their belief that. Uh, uh, you know, in the face of imperialism, there was a need for a greater unity uh, in the uh, Islamic world. Uh, that uh, you know, m- Muslims should be more unified in their in their uh, religious uh, practice. Uh, so there's a kind of uh, diversity to the actors who I think have have an interest in this kind of uh, standardization. We could call it. I mean, you mentioned, for instance, that these people are going to Paris. They're coming to Paris to learn you know, about astronomical timekeeping, about astronomy, and to study at the observatory. I mean, what is it that they're, what is it that they're coming to Paris to learn? And what is it that they, for instance, couldn't achieve in Cairo? If, you know, for instance, there already is methods of establishing prayer times, uh, of observing the stars, you know, what what's new in the 19th century? Why go to Paris to learn this? Right. Uh, and it's not necessarily what, uh, one would think, I mean, when we think, you know, in broad stereotypical terms about modern astronomy, I mean, we think about, uh, you know, heliocentric planetary uh, theory, for example, and it's really not that uh, at all. Um, I mean, the the uh, astronomers who come to, uh, or the people who come to Paris from, from Cairo in the middle of the 19th century to study uh, astronomy uh, are... Uh, in Paris for a, a very specific purpose, which is really to learn uh, the techniques of uh, survey astronomy uh, in 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 more uh, detail, uh, and the the astronomy of of, of uh, determining uh, longitude and latitude, uh, and uh, ultimately constructing uh, uh, maps. And it's worth saying that that is not uh, just a kind of specifically Ottoman or Egyptian concern in that period, and that there's a lot of overlap. I mean, one of the reasons they're coming to Paris is that that is a major concern of the French state and of the Observatoire de Paris in that period uh, as well, uh, just as it's a a major concern for uh, um, the Greenwich Observatory, the Royal Greenwich Observatory. in the United Kingdom, right? I mean, they are not just coming to Europe to, uh, let's say, um, 
catch up with uh, what's uh, going on uh, in Paris, um, but in many ways the the interests of those uh, states are, are all uh, in uh, astronomy are all very similar uh, at the same time. Why is Paris and London created, interested in creating you know usable, accurate geodesic maps of of these areas? Perhaps the answer is obvious, mm-hmm. but I mean, could you just is it so obvious? Well, uh, in a sense, it's not obvious because because for us, the idea that uh, one can kind of picture uh, the territory of the state, right, and particularly uh, the nation state, uh, is um, I mean, it's hard to imagine not having that that kind of map, right? Um, but uh, that is in 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 many ways a creation of let's say the 18th and and 19th uh, centuries, um, and uh, so for example, uh, the French state, right, uh, the French revolutionary state, right, in the, in the end of the 18th century, uh, right, it's it's at that point uh, that um, you know famously, right, uh, they first um, tried to define the the meter, right, um, with reference to, uh, you know, a, a quarter of, uh, of um, uh, you know, uh, of, uh, of uh, circle of, uh, of longitude, um, and specifically with, with reference to the, to the uh, Paris meridian. Um, so right, so and and uh, in in an Egyptian context, I mean Timothy Mitchell, for example, has has I think very um, memorably talked about the the power that uh, accrues to a state which is able to uh, picture its territory uh, right from the center, as opposed to a state which only has kind of. Uh, literary descriptions of its territory um so the kind of the the end point or one important end point of this is the cadastral survey of egypt that's finished in in 1907 uh and uh is uh enables uh, uh or is done for the the purpose of uh enabling more efficient uh revenue right um uh, extraction of, of revenue and, and, and tax from, uh, from the Nile Valley uh, under, uh, you know, during the period of the, of the British occupation, which was so concerned with the financial uh, condition of, uh, of the country. Um, so that uh, survey, right, is, is the first kind of complete uh, survey that um, accounts for uh, the Nile Valley um, in uh, cartographic uh, way as opposed to these old kind of registers that kind of listed um, property and were and were based on the knowledge of uh, village uh, surveyors. So it's a kind of redistribution uh, of knowledge um, to the center, to Cairo, um, to the capital, um, in a way that that allows for the exercise uh, of um, of more centralized uh, power. Can you give us? I mean, just to talk about again these people coming to Paris um can you give us kind of a a description of one or two of them who are they what did they do in Paris did they come back to Egypt certainly uh well a couple of them who uh become quite well known um are um Ismail al-Falaki uh and Mahmoud al-Falaki um al-Falaki of course uh means the astronomer so this is not a very 
a useful way to uh, distinguish between them. Um, but uh, Ismail Mustafa and uh, Mahmoud Hamdi are their are their names. Um, they both uh, achieve uh, the rank of, of Pasha uh, later in their careers. So one, one can see even from that their importance. Uh, so sometimes they're called Ismail Basha, Mahmoud Basha, uh, and so forth. Uh, and they are more or less mid-19th century figures. Both of them come to the uh, Observatoire de Paris uh, in the 1850s. Um, both of them go on to have very distinguished careers in the viceregal government when they uh, return uh, to Cairo uh, directing uh, schools. Uh, Mahmoud uh, serves in the, in the cabinet uh, as a minister. Uh, so they're very important uh, figures in uh, one can say sort of the tech and growing technocracy uh, uh, of uh, of Egypt in that period. One I'm particularly interested in is um, Ismail Mustafa, who uh, actually spent 14 years uh, in Paris uh, in the 1850s and early 1860s. What's interesting to me about him, uh, as we were talking a little bit about earlier, is that he doesn't just come learn, go back to, to Cairo and use his skills there. He actually spends enough time here that he becomes a member of the staff of the Observatoire de Paris. And in that capacity, uh, one sees his work uh, published in uh, you know, the Comte Rondeau of the Académie des Sciences in, in, in Paris. One sees uh, him participating in uh, French uh, expeditions uh, to observe eclipses. Uh, so there's a kind of multidirectional story here. Uh, the instruments that he commissions for the uh, government of Egypt are so good that, that one of them is actually used in French survey work before he brings it back to Egypt uh, to use uh, in surveying there. Uh, so on a material level as well, one sees, again, as I was saying, that you know, it's, it's uh, a story of kind of overlapping interests and practices in, in Paris and, and Cairo. So I think in, so far we've seen how the 19th century state and the people of Egypt are interested in, let's say, establishing prayer time through astronomical means, but also you know, using uh, new astrono astronomical knowledge to do survey work. Um, you briefly touched upon this, but you know, when we, in the popular conception of astronomy, you know, there's always this notion of Copernicus and Galileo uh, challenging, let's say, cosmological notions of the order of the universe and so forth. Was, did any of this uh, new astronomical knowledge from Europe or other, you know, elsewhere come to Egypt? Is it interacting with Egypt and uh, what people are thinking about in Egypt? And if so, like, where does, where does this debate occur? Uh, well, it's certainly uh, present in Egypt and, and available to people uh, in, in parts of Egypt, at least, uh, I mean, certainly in the, in the 19th century. Uh, but one of the things I'm trying to do is to uh, contextualize and, and even, uh, if it's not too strong a word, marginalize the importance of uh, those kinds of debates, which, as, as you say, are, are so central to the way in which... Uh, uh, you know, we understand the history of astronomy and even kind of the history of the of the emergence of, of the modern sciences. Uh, so one thing I'm interested in, for example, is the fact that uh, scholars in 19th century Cairo who were uh, very preoccupied with astronomy and clearly one can show through their 
who their teachers were and what was available in their social media uh, had, you know, an awareness of, for example, uh, heliocentric uh, planetary theory. Nevertheless, uh, don't always talk about it in their work. Uh, even where they touch upon, you know, the the planetary models, they'll explain the Ptolemaic uh, planetary uh, models in very kind of brief terms, uh, and that's it. You know, there's no uh, critique of you know a heliocentric worldview. Uh, there's no defense of a Ptolemaic uh, planetary theory. Uh, there's no engagement uh, uh, on that level. Uh, and I would argue that for a lot of people, it just wasn't uh, uh, relevant to the, you know, the practice of, of astronomy, the purposes of astronomy that we've been talking about. Um, it wasn't a central concern for them. Uh, so I, I write a lot about this Zij uh, commentary that's written by a scholar in Demyat in the 1820s, and we know from references to it that turn up in other uh, Ottoman cities through the 19th century that was studied and well-regarded by many uh, scholars. Right? It's an example uh, of uh, this kind of work that just doesn't uh, touch upon uh, uh, this issue of uh, planetary theory. Um, where uh, these debates do start to happen very much is in the Arabic press, particularly in the late 19th century when you have really uh, a flourishing kind of Arabic press uh, based uh, in part in Cairo, uh, in part in Beirut and, and uh, uh, Bilad al-Sham, um, Alexandria also becomes quite important. Uh, and, you know, people in all of these cities kind of uh, reading uh, 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 and exchanging uh, 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 periodicals. Uh, so there, uh, for example, there's a very famous uh, debate, uh, or, or I should say a, a very uh, public debate uh, that transpires in the 1870s, roughly between 1874 and 76, over uh, a number of, of astronomical issues, but... but uh, Centrally, you know the the uh, heliocentric uh, theory, uh, and what's in, one thing that's interesting about that debate is that it's not uh, simply an Islamic debate. Uh, in fact, it it sort of originates in um, uh, debates among uh, Christians uh, in the um, greater Syrian uh, press, and then becomes a kind of um, very layered uh, Islamic and kind of cross-confessional uh, debate in which uh, Muslim uh, authors, including one uh, Abdullah Fikri Pasha, uh, who goes on to become uh, a minister of education uh, in Egypt later. Um, uh, uh, he's an important uh, official in the, in the Ministry of Education or Public Instruction, uh, writes uh, an interesting uh, tract uh, defending uh, heliocentrism uh, re reconciling it with uh, Islamic uh, texts, particularly uh, the Quran and Hadith, uh, and that then gets cited by Christian authors who who use it to show that uh, your religion and and science are not in conflict and so forth. So it's an interesting kind of cross confessional uh, debate in the eighteen seventies, but it's happening very much in 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 the Arabic press, uh, and it's in part I see it as a debate about. 
who should have the authority really to to speak about about science uh, in this kind of new medium, very public uh, medium. So one thing that uh, Abdallah Fikri Pasha proposes in his treatise, you know, it's not just a treatise defending uh, uh, the new astronomy. He also says, you know, we really should not, uh, you know, ideas like this, you know, critiques of the new astronomy should not even really be allowed in the press. There should be a, a commission which oversees anything which uh, uh, someone wants to be published and decides whether it's, you know, is, is knowledge or not. So it's very much a debate about kind of what is going to count as, as, as knowledge in this new uh, public uh, medium. I mean, what, what was the opposing side or was there an opposing side? To like Abdullah Fikri Pasha, either that knowledge should be discussed, and you know anyone could discuss issues of astronomy and astrology, or I mean, was there, or was there an, another side that like disagreed with him completely, both about the topic and the format? Well, absolutely. I mean, there there are people uh, in, in the late nineteenth century who who believe uh, either you know they may be Christians who believe that. Uh, uh, you know, on, on biblical grounds, the, uh, uh, they they disagree with the heliocentric uh, theory. Uh, it could be Muslims who who um, disagree with it uh, on scriptural grounds as well. A lot of it has to do, uh, of course, with um, the uh, Aristotelian uh, worldview and and its uh, enduring uh, authority in that context. Um, so it's not just um, scriptural, but it also has to do with uh you know the idea that uh of uniform circular motion and you know that the earth is at the center uh of the cosmos uh and you know the authority of that uh philosophical tradition uh is uh is quite important uh as as well um but but as as you're saying i mean uh, uh, a lot of it also, I mean, what's also implicated in, in this issue is is who counts, you know, as let's say an astronomer, who counts as you know a, a, a person of of knowledge. Is it you know people who uh, are studying in circles around Al Azhar? Is it people who are uh, now associated with state observatories? Is it journalists? You know, who who ha- who is kind of the the spokesman for uh, what what counts as as knowledge now? I mean, so I think this is one of the interesting controversies that uh, appears in the late 19th century. Earlier, you mentioned a different one, which is the issue of kind of multiple conceptions of time mm-hmm. uh, simultaneously occurring uh, or interacting. Uh, could you kind of explain, like, you know, you mentioned before that before people would set their clocks by according at sunset, and then there's also at the same time people that are setting their clocks according to Greenwich Mean Time. Mm-hmm. Can you just uh, tell us a bit more about what happened there? What what was occurring? What was the debate over? This is less of a debate than a, a sort of uh, confusion in 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 practice that uh, that that starts and and I don't mean uh, uh, that people are confused about what they're doing, but different people are doing different things, and so they become uh, uh, they begin to disagree literally about what time it is uh, in the late nineteenth and and early twentieth centuries. So as so as I said earlier. Uh, there's uh, an Ottoman way of, of keeping time in which one uh, sets one's clock at uh, the moment to, to 12 at the moment of, of sunset on a given day. And so the watch, uh, the, the, or rather the time that your watch shows, is uh, a measure uh, of duration from uh, the previous uh, sunset. 
One of the things, interesting things that the viceregal astronomers in Cairo do uh, in the 1870s, specifically in 1874, is they decide to, uh, and this is an example, I think, of them using their their new uh, techniques and knowledge to, to um, kind of encroach upon uh, what had been, uh, you know, the territory of kind of Islamic astronomical timekeeping. They set up a new public time signal in Cairo, um, uh, a cannon uh, in the Cairo Citadel, right, the historic kind of seat of government in Cairo, a cannon which fires uh, at noon. Uh, every day um, in in Cairo, and and one can hear echoes of this to this day in Cairo in the use of the cannon, for example, during uh, Ramadan to signal the end of the fast and and, and so forth. Um, what's interesting is that although they're setting up a kind of new time signal, they do it uh, in a way which is consistent with older Ottoman and, and Islamic practice, which is that they make it the signal of noon correspond to actual real local noon when the sun is crossing the local meridian, right? And so it would also indicate roughly the time of the Dur prayer, right? The noon prayer uh, in Islam, as opposed to it being uh, an arbitrary noon, uh, right? Uh, like we're, uh, we're used to. So they would shoot the cannon, and then you were supposed to set your watch to noon, basically. Reset your watch? Exactly. So what, what people start doing is they start setting their watch uh, by that cannon uh, at noon. But it's still a locally variable time, right? It's still noon when the sun is crossing the, uh, the local meridian, which changes over the, over the course of the year as the length of the day and so forth uh, changes. Uh, and so it, c- it can still uh, correspond to the time of Islamic prayer. Um, when the British uh, set up an observatory in Cairo, which they finished building in 1903 in Helwan, uh, and it's there to this day, the Helwan Observatory, um, they, uh, of course, want uh, Egypt to be on uh, the system that they are kind of extending throughout the world at that point of uh, Greenwich Standard Mean Time, right, in which... Um, uh, uh, you know, there are time zones, right? The the modern time zones that that we're used to, which are you know an, an hour or two hour or three hours, uh, 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 different from uh, the time uh, as it, the mean time uh, at uh, Greenwich in uh, in the UK. Um, in Cairo, uh, they decide that right that that mean time uh, will be based on the time of the thirtieth meridian, which is close to Cairo, but it's not quite in Cairo, and there's a difference of about five minutes um, uh, from kind of local uh, Cairo uh, mean time, uh, and as a result, um, the times of prayer that are published in the almanacs um, start to be. Uh, sort of uh, five minutes uh, off. And this causes uh, a great deal uh, of confusion uh, in early 20th century Cairo uh, until there's actually an ordinance from the Ministry of, of Waqfs, um, the Wazarat al-Awqaf, um, in the early 1920s and 1923 that kind of sets everything straight and kind of tells people, you know, okay, these are the almanacs you need to be using. This is the signal according to which you should be setting your watch uh, and, and kind of standardizes the practice of, of um uh, by which you know muezzins were were giving the call to prayer in the mosques uh, in that period. It's also the case to add a further uh, level of complexity that even as people start using this Greenwich standard mean time, which which um, 
you know, is, is now being displayed, for example, on clocks in railway stations um, uh, as the railway spreads in, in mid and late 19th century uh, Egypt. But it's also the case that some people continue to practice this older Ottoman method uh, of setting their clocks uh, at sunset. And so if you look in the early 20th century, uh, almanacs, for example, that are published in Cairo, they have a multiple uh, kind of columns that give, you know, different uh, sorts of, of, of time depending on your practice. And, and, and one sees parallels here uh, to what was going on in Istanbul, um, as, as we know from the work of Avner Vishnitzer and, and, and others. Uh, today, I think we've heard quite a bit about uh, different aspects of astronomy and how astronomy integrates itself into uh, 19th century Egyptian culture and society, uh, both from, let's say, issues of timekeeping, but also surveying, and how this uh, slowly starts you know, working itself into the culture, creating uh, certain tensions which uh, we touched upon briefly uh, by looking at the Arabic press uh, and issues over timekeeping. So I think one of the points that was, you know, most interesting for me listening about the 19th century is just, you know, how important that these daily practices of, uh, of astronomy are, especially issues of, you know, timekeeping, uh, setting prayer times, uh, and so forth, and that this is really quite different from what we you know, the popular conception of astronomy is, and the importance of astronomy as a sort of uh, moment, you know, of, let's say, modern thought of the heliocentricity of the world kind of clashing with traditional modes of knowledge. Um, and I think it's an important emphasis that when we, you know, when we come to sit down and write the history of 19th century um, science in the Middle East, that you know that we have to center it on these kind of daily practices and what you know what is important to them and what what they were writing and uh, focusing their attentions on. I think that's right. I mean, absolutely. For me, one of the things that's exciting about working specifically on the history of astronomy uh, as a history of science uh, in an Islamic context is that it does, and 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 as a history of science and religion, importantly. Uh, I should say, is that it does get one at uh, practice and, and social routines uh, in a very uh, central way. I mean, the, in, the way in which people are reinterpreting scripture and, 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 and so forth is also important, uh, but astronomy, uh, in part because of its connections that, that we've talked about, both with astrology and Islamic uh, ritual practice, uh, does get one into uh, social routines uh, in, a, in, in a way that I think enriches uh, the conversation about uh, the history of, of science in the late Ottoman Empire and uh, the history of science and, and religion uh, more broadly. And, you know, when we, the other, uh, I think, big question that we've been dealing with is kind of what's the role of, let's say, Europe, of people coming to Europe, especially Paris and to a lesser degree London, studying there um, and then kind of bringing back knowledge from there to Egypt and applying it. Um, you know, often we have this world, you know, we have this view of uh, the 19th century is basically the kind of influence or the knowledge, the flow of knowledge kind of just streaming from Europe into the Middle East. Um, you know, how do you see your work kind of dealing with that kind of conception? Uh, where, 
you know, especially this notion that, you know, Europe is modern and the Middle East is kind of slowly catching up and modernizing. Well, one one thing we've talked about uh, is, uh, you know, telling a story which is more multidirectional, right? Talking about the way in which uh, the Ottoman and Egyptian astronomers, when they were in Paris, were also uh, contributing to the daily work of the European institutions that they were a part of. So making it a more uh, multidirectional story. This, of course, fits in very nicely with a broader uh, and, and now... Uh, fairly long tradition in, in history of science and science and technology studies of, of, of telling the history of the modern sciences as, uh, uh, you know, not as a, a totally Eurocentric uh, story. One thing I, I, I hope to add to that conversation is, is to not only make the story about the history of the modern sciences less Eurocentric, but... Uh, but also to point simply to the importance of other historical phenomena in the history of science in, let's say, the 19th and early 20th centuries that aren't necessarily a part of uh, the emergence of the modern sciences, whether in the Middle East or in Europe. So the fact that very sophisticated uh, uh, astronomers in the 19th century aware of alternatives, we're still practicing uh, an astronomy based on Ptolemaic planetary models, and that that practice had social relevance uh, in certain places, uh, and that they're um, not concerned with uh, alternative uh, techniques and, and, and theories, even as they're aware of them, uh, are not concerned even with really critiquing or explicitly rejecting them. Uh, that there is, uh, let's say, a, a continuity uh, of practice alongside uh, these newer uh, uh, phenomena that I've talked about in the State Observatory and uh, going to Paris and, and so forth, um, and looking at the way in which mechanical timepieces are... are uh, adapted in Ottoman and late Ottoman society think you know to realize that even uh, what we might think of as, as very new uh, technologies you know fit into uh, or could be adapted within uh, uh, older uh, knowledge uh, traditions uh, and and social routines of, of timekeeping so so not just trying in other words to expand or, or retell the history of the modern sciences and the, and the emergence of a modern Middle East and, and so forth, but to, to point to other uh, phenomena that maybe uh, de-emphasize that narrative at the same time. Well, I think it's a very important like intervention and contribution to make, and I think we often, especially when we study something that's so closely attached to modernity as science, quote-unquote, uh, you know, it's very important to keep these questions and observations in mind. So with that, I'd like to say thank you again for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so much, Nir. Uh, I, uh, I'm a big fan of Ottoman History Podcast, and uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Well, it was great having you on. Uh, for those of you that are interested in learning more about this, um, Daniel has uh, Daniel will provide us with a short bibliography of places you can find out more uh, about this topic. And, and you can, in the near future you can eventually look forward to daniel's book uh on the topic uh which we are eagerly awaiting thank you very much near thank you